Well, welcome again to Lakeshore. We're so glad that you're here. Welcome to the Smyrna campus. We're glad you guys are with us today. Anybody connecting with us online, we're so glad you've connected in that, that format as well. We have been in a series for many weeks now from the book of James. And believe it or not, today we finish that series. We're in the last two verses of James's letter to the churches. And it has been, for me, just so refreshing to teach through this book, verse by verse, week after week, and gain all the practical insight that James gives us on how to live out our faith, how faith works in everyday life. And when James comes to the end of this letter, he emphasizes something that he wanted to leave with us as as so important, he said, at the, at the end of this letter, remember this is important. Remember this. You need to be doing this. One last thing that's really a big deal for followers of Jesus Christ. I've entitled this message, Rescue the Fallen. Rescuing the Fallen. We all know people who have fallen away in their walk with Christ. And, and sometimes we know the reason. And sometimes we don't. They just, all of a sudden, they're not there anymore. They're not participating. They, they just kind of disappear. And they never let you know what's going on or, or why. And sometimes we're able to follow up and, 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 and try to get them back. And, and they're responsive to it. Sometimes they're not. It always amazes me how many people are not responsive to the efforts of the church to rescue them and bring them back home. But it's more common than you think. When I was a teenager, I worked for the town that I grew up in, in Elberton, Georgia. And I worked for the, the city there. And they had a program where I did a lot of different things at different times of the year. And in the summer, once I got to be a teenager, I worked at the city pool as a lifeguard and swim instructor. Okay? So I taught swimming on early morning classes, and then uh, when the pool opened for public swim, then I worked as a lifeguard at the swimming pool. And, and everybody thought, what a cushy job, right? You just sit out in the sun, you know, you're, you're out the pool every day. And, but, but we took it very seriously. We had to go through a lot of training to learn how to properly rescue people. And friends, I did have to rescue some, several people along the way. Even my first year in college, I worked as a lifeguard at, the YMCA, at a YMCA in Atlanta and I had to rescue some people at the pool there. And it can be a really intense, scary time when someone is in, in danger of drowning and you're the one that's responsible for making sure they don't drown. But I can remember one thing, one case in particular that just amazed me. There was this young man that uh, he was there at the pool. He, he had been coming for a while, and he wasn't a good swimmer, and we kept making him stay in the shallow end. He couldn't go past the rope because we just knew he wasn't a good swimmer. It would be too dangerous for him to be in the deep end. But then one day after he'd been coming a while, his mother came with him and asked to speak to me. I said, sure. So I went over and talked to the mom. She had her boy there. She said, uh, I want to know why you don't let my boy go in the deep end. I said, well, ma'am, it's for his protection. Well, what do you mean? I said, well, he doesn't swim well enough to be in the deep end. Yes, he can. I said, ma'am, I, I really don't believe he can. We've been watching, and, you know, we have a test that you have to do to be able to be allowed to swim in the deep end, and I just don't believe he's skilled enough at swimming to pass the test. She says, yes, he can. Give him the test. I said, okay. 
I knew he couldn't do it. I, I knew before it even started, this was not something this young man could do. But she insisted, so I took him down to the deep end, had him just get in down on the side and hold on to the side for a minute. And I went ahead and grabbed the rescue pole and had it in my hand because I knew I was going to need it. And this guy started across. He had to go across and back to be able to go in the deep end. And not even halfway across, he's panicking already and splashing and going under. And one thing you learn about people when they really feel like they're drowning is they often panic and won't listen to anything you tell them to do. So I held out the pole for him to grab onto, and his back was still kind of to me, and he wasn't listening to anything I was saying, and he was just fighting the water, and he wouldn't grab hold to the pole. So finally I laid the pole down, and I said just to the mom without looking at her, I've got to go get him. And she said, no, he can do it. I just didn't pay any attention. I jumped in. I grabbed the boy. I pulled him to the side, got him up on the side. He had swallowed a lot of water. He was choking. He finally got all cleared up. And I took him to his mom. And his mom said, I can't believe you did that. You embarrassed him in front of everybody. I said, ma'am, he was going to drown. No, he wasn't. He could do it. And you see, that's what happens to a lot of us as we start wandering away from God. Either us or the other people around us that we have in our lives tell us everything's okay. It's all good. You don't have to be at church regularly. You don't have to stay in a life group. You don't have to be in fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ. You're, you'll still be fine. You're not going to drown. And people are out there drowning. And sometimes it gets to the place where they're panicking. And they're afraid. And friends, when they're really at that place, and only God can judge where they are, you can't tell from looking at them sometimes. In fact, if you've ever seen, there's a, there, there's a special out there that talks about drowning doesn't always look like drowning. Sometimes somebody that's drowning doesn't panic and doesn't kick or splash or anything. They just go down. There is no fight. They just go down. So you can't always tell somebody is about to drown just by looking at them from the outside. But we know people without Christ and without being connected to the body of Christ are in danger of drowning. They're in danger of destruction. And the church has to wake up to the reality that even if people are telling us we don't need to be doing this, even if people are telling us the church needs to just stay in their own little group and mind their own business, and if somebody goes away and doesn't want to be there, you just leave them alone, even when people are telling us that, it is imperative for us to go after and try to rescue the drowning, those that are lost, those that are disconnected, those that have wandered away, separated themselves from Christ and their lives. That's why James says... If one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from what? Death. And cover over a multitude of sins. This is a life and death matter. That friend that you've got, that coworker that you've got, that family member that you've got that is totally disconnected from God in the church right now, they are in mortal danger every day. And we must wake up to that reality or we'll never be serious about rescuing 
those that are lost. So I want to look at several things here today. Let's start with the reality of the situation. The reality is people are going to wander off. In 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul wrote to Timothy, Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So here he talks about the fact that if you're not careful, this could happen to anybody. And we need to be careful in two areas, our life and our doctrine. So let's look at the first thing. The reality is people will wander off in their behavior, in their lifestyle behavior. They will wander off. There's an Old Testament passage that says this, All we like sheep have gone astray, right? Now here's the thing about sheep. They don't intentionally run off and get disconnected. Sheep will just be out there minding their own business, eating some grass. They'll see some grass over there. They'll go over there. They'll, they'll go there. And without somebody corralling them, they will just naturally kind of wander off. Just through not paying attention, not being careful, not watching what's going on. When, when, when Jesus compares us to sheep, he's not bragging on us. Sheep are not real intelligent animals. They're not. They need lots of help and care. And that's why God gave us the church and the shepherds of the church. It's because left to ourselves, what's going to happen? We wander off. So if you get disconnected from the church, it's much easier to wander off even further into things that will hurt and kill and destroy. You see, when sheep wander off, they are in grave danger for their lives. They don't have any defense mechanisms. They're not real fast runners. They can't really fight well with any other predator that attacks them. So when they get disconnected, they put themselves in grave danger. And, and this scripture, James, is telling us that, that some people are going to wander off in behavior. So here's the thing. We, we can look at people's lives, and we're not... We're not trying to uh, hopefully be, be the kind of people that are just trying to tear other people down. That's not what he's talking about here. But when you watch somebody's life and you see them making decisions and taking steps and getting involved, in, getting involved in things that are outside of the will of God for them, then you are seeing them wander off. You are watching them make decisions and take steps to get further away from God and God's plan and God's purpose and God's will for their lives. Getting outside the boundaries God put there for their protection. And when you get outside those boundaries, there's harm waiting on you. And we've got family and friends that we will just watch. Make choices to go outside those boundaries and their lifestyle choices. Sometimes it's through the influence of friends. Sometimes it's just something they got interested in or they got caught up on stuff on the Internet or, or, or hanging out with people at the bar. And now they're making choices that they weren't making before and, and doing things they weren't doing before. And, you know, there are a lot of different ways this happens. But when it happens, we have a responsibility. When we see them starting to wander off, we can't just say, oh, well, I don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't want them to think less of me. I don't want them to think I'm judgmental, right? So I'm just not going to say anything 
or do anything. And yet James says, if you can turn a sinner from the error of their way, it will save them from death. Is that worth taking some risk for? Is that worth being falsely accused of being judgmental? Is it worth that to save their lives? You see, we have to make a decision about what really matters more, being light or helping that person come back home to where they're safe and have the life that God wants them to have. We've got to make the decision. And James is saying the better decision is to help turn that sinner back from the error of their way of their ways and sometimes it's in behavior Hebrews 10 uh, has a there's a passage there that uh, I can't believe how controversial it became it's because of some doctrine that got started but here's what it says in verse 26 and 27 if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth no sacrifice for sins is left but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God does that sound like danger to you he says, if someone deliberately chooses to go on in a sinful lifestyle and they don't ever turn away from it, then there remains no more for them a sacrifice for their sins. But in place of sacrifice for their sins, what they have to look forward to is a raging fire that consumes the enemies of God. If you really are a friend to that person and you really care about that person, do you want to let them walk off into that? I don't either. So we have to make the effort, even if it's not well received. We can't control the response, but we still have to be willing to make the effort. It's worth it. Now, the debate comes in with some people that are believing this uh, uh, doctrine of predestination. Well, they were really not saved to start with, or they would never have walked away. Or there are others that believe, like I do, that yes, you could have been right with God and God will never walk away from you or, and nobody can take your salvation away by force, but you can choose to walk away from Him and not have that sacrifice for your life anymore. Here's the deal. I don't care which one of those positions you come down on. really doesn't matter to me. You can sit in the corner and argue that with somebody if you want to. I'm just going to go try to get them to come back. Either way. I'm just going to go after them and try to bring them back from where they're headed. And if it's predestined or not predestined, I don't care. It doesn't matter. I'm not in charge of that. I'm just called to go help rescue those that are wandering away. Let's not get caught in the weeds that Satan wants us to get caught up in and arguing over that stuff while at the same time people are going off to their destruction. And we're not going after them. Let's make sure that we listen to what James is saying here. So they can wander in behavior, but they can also wander in belief. And I see more and more of that happening in our culture today, too. In 2 Timothy 5, verse 15, it says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. For those of you who don't know about gangrene, it's like an infection that gets in and rots the skin and everything. So it's, a, it's ugly. It's a bad thing, all right? It says, among them are Hymenius and uh, Philetus, who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. 
So even already in this early stage of the life of the church, there were already false teachers out there telling people things that were not in line with the truth of God's word. And some people were buying it, they were believing it, they were following it to their own destruction. And we have a responsibility in that case too. In Galatians 1 verse 6 it says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even, listen to this warning, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we've already said, I now say it again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than the one you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Any changing of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a perversion of the word of God, period. If God's word calls it sin, what is it? Does anything change that other than God himself? No. If God says it's good and right, does anything change that? No. Unless God himself tells us it's different now. And God hasn't said that. See, it's it's a balance we have to keep. He doesn't say you can't change methods or musical styles or styles of worship. You can change any and all of that to whatever is most effective. But one thing you never change is the teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ever. And what we are doing in our culture today in the church is many of them. I'm not saying at Lakeshore. This is not happening here. I'm so grateful for that. But the church has begun to change the gospel. To say some things are okay that God's word says are not. And to say some things are are, are not really necessary that God says are necessary. To say that some things are are not good that God says is good and right. To suit the hearers and what they want to hear. And we don't have that authority. And we're not called to do that. In fact, we are warned not to do that. We are said by scripture to be put under the curse of God if we do that so the leadership here at Lakeshore is committed to never ever compromising the teaching of God's word ever and I'm so thankful we've got leadership like that and staff with that commitment but we all need to join in that commitment when someone is wandering away and they're beginning to listen to and believe things that are not scriptural we 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 need to be willing to speak up and show them what God's word really says about that Now, we've got to do it out of love because we love them. We don't want them to be led astray. We don't want them to wander off. It's got to be with the right motive, but we've got to be willing to do it. Even when they don't want to hear it sometimes, it's still our responsibility to tell them the truth about those things. Now, there are right ways and wrong ways to do it, but it still needs to be done. We don't need to do it out of anger and try to to be mean-spirited about it, but, but we need to love them enough to talk to them about this in the right way. And it's uncomfortable to have those conversations. It is. I don't know anybody that is really just totally at ease all the time with talking to someone about this stuff when you know they already don't agree with you in advance. 
But if you can get a listening ear and they're willing to hear you out, we need to be willing to make the effort. That's what it means to rescue people. They don't even always realize the danger they're in, but they need to be rescued. And there are people that need to be willing to be the rescuers for those that are wandering away. So that's the second thing here is the responsibility that we have. It begins with, so that we do this the right way. Remember, there's a right way and a wrong way to do this. It begins with making correction in your own life. Okay? One of the worst criticisms, of course, of the church is we're judgmental and we're, we're uh, hypocritical and all that. Right? So, so no matter what we do, we're still going to get some of that. But we want to uh, negate as much of that as possible by getting our act together. By, by getting our lives in order. Not that we're going to be perfect. None of us is going to be perfect. But we're making choices consistently to walk in the will of God for our lives. And when we're not, we repent and we seek forgiveness and we make correction in our lives. And people can see if we're doing that or not, right? So we can set a good example. Uh, Matthew 7, beginning with verse 1, we have one of, the, one of the most quoted verses in the world today. All right? Here's what he says. Do not judge... Or you too will be judged. Right? People love to throw that one out there. They, they love to say, you don't need to be telling me anything about my life and what's wrong with my life. Because look at your life. You're not perfect either. you got problems too. You have no right to judge me. And I always say, you're absolutely right. I'm not judging you. But there is a judge. And his word as a judge says this. And he's the one you're going to stand before. Not me, but him. I just want to help you see it. I want to help you understand that. I want you to know here's what the judge says about those things. Not what I say. What I say doesn't matter. What the judge says does matter. But, but here's what that verse goes on to say. They always stop right there. But here's what it says. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. All right? Now, some people take that the wrong way. Well, if I judge them, it means I'm going to be condemned. Uh, yeah, if you judge them the wrong way. But if you judge them, if you allow God to be the judge and his word to be the judgment, then you're not the one judging. And that's the way you're going to be judged is by the word of God and what God says about those things. So that's, that's the way it ought to be, right? Then he says, verse 3, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? So he's bringing up the problem here that people will use against us when we try to help them. Here you are trying to get that little bitty speck out of that person's eye while you've got this great big plank sticking out of yours. So here's what he says. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? And a lot of people will stop there with the story. And say, okay, it means you have no right to get the speck out of your brother's eye. But that's not what he's teaching here. That's not even the point of what he's teaching here. The point is what he says next. Verse 5. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then what will you be able to do? See clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. The goal is still to do what? Help your brother get the speck out of their eye. You see the difference there? He's not saying you can't ever help somebody that's going off the wrong way because you're messed up too. He's saying make the correction you need to make and get yourself in a good position to help your brother or your sister that's struggling with what they're going through. There's still the responsibility to go rescue the other person, 
to help the other person with what they're struggling with. We just need to do it in the right way. There's more to how we do this in Scripture, too. I love that God doesn't leave us in the dark here. Uh, one thing he teaches us is to attempt, first of all, to correct privately, too. It is true that a wrong way to do it is to make some big public spectacle out of it and, and call out people's faults in a public way in front of everybody where they get embarrassed in front of everybody around them. That's not the first approach to helping somebody that is wandered away from God and God's way for their lives. In verse Matthew 18, beginning with verse 15, he says this. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. Again, this verse has been misunderstood a lot, but here's the process, kind of the, the, the way this needs to progress. Okay, you see a brother or sister that's getting off track. The first step is not to call them out publicly in front of the church. That, that, that's the last resort. Okay, And it's not even to call them out publicly in front of friends and family. That's not the first step either. What's the first step? You go directly to them. You just talk one-on-one with that person. Might go something like this. Brother, I love you, man. And it hurts me because I see, I see you making some choices that I think are harmful for you and your family or your friends. I think if you keep going down that path, it's going to even get worse. And because I love you and care about you, I couldn't just sit back and watch you do this without talking to you about it. Now, they may or may not receive that very well. A lot of it has to do with how much you've already shown them that you love them and care about them to start with, Right? If they don't know that you care about them anyway, then this is not going to be received very well. But if they know you really have consistently loved them and cared for them, then it's more likely they might receive this a little better. And even if they don't receive it with the right response to start with, at least you've planted the seed. You've started the process, right, of, of getting them to think about where they're going in their lives and what they're doing. Now, in today's culture, it's gotten worse than I've ever seen it. I mean, there, no matter how tactful you are or loving you are, if you point out any fault in anybody's life, you are a judgmental hypocrite. You know, you can't believe you're doing that. And, you know, they just fly off the handle about how awful you are and how awful the church is. I get that response sometimes, too. And I'm willing to risk that. To plant that seed in their mind, in their heart. And I pray that God's spirit will be working through what we're doing and what we've said. And if there's any openness at all to letting God work, that their hearts would be transformed. And I always put it with scripture. I don't ever make it my opinion. I always say, here's, here's a scripture that talks about that. Let's, you mind if I read that to you? So they know I'm not just saying, here's my opinion on this. But here's what God's word really says about it. And when you connect it with scripture, then they can be angry at you. But ultimately, who are they going to have to fight with? God. They're going to have to do battle with God. Because they can see when you point it out, here's what God's word really says about that thing.
And then they've got to struggle with God on it. And I've got a feeling God can handle that. I don't have to do that part for him. But he does want me to approach the person and the subject. But then if they don't listen when you go to them one-on-one, then you bring some other people along. So here's what begins to happen. If they get defensive, they can have a tendency to falsely accuse you of you saying some things you didn't really say. They may have heard it that way. They may have twisted it to make it sound like you said something that way. But if you bring somebody with you this next time, make it somebody that, that also cares about them and loves them and is not trying to attack them in any way, you bring them along with you so that you have a witness to what was actually said or not said in that communication. Protects everybody involved when you do it that way. But sadly, sometimes even after all of that, every effort in prayer, they still refuse to listen. And this is extreme, but as a last resort, what you have to do is bring it to the church. Now, that, that can be done in different ways. It doesn't mean you have to stand up publicly and announce what's going on to the church. It means the leaders of the church can be made aware of it and what the situation is. And, and, uh, and, and it helps leaders know we don't need this person maybe because of what's going on right now, you know, teaching or leading in a program or doing something, you know, where they're seen in a leadership role in the church. It helps us know to only allow certain responsibility there for that person in the life of the church. So it enables the leaders to protect the church from the harm that could come to the church, okay? And then the leaders could approach them as leaders in the church if they need to do that, if they're open to that step. But then if they still won't listen, it says you should treat them like a pagan or a tax collector. Now, very quickly, that doesn't mean you, don't, you can't be friends with them anymore or anything like that. It means... You have to understand they've made a choice not to be part of the fellowship in the same way anymore. They are making choices to say, I don't want to be identified or connected with the church if that's what you believe and teach and are going to be doing. And you have to allow for that if that's their choice. You never want that. That's never the outcome you're looking for. But it does happen. So you attempt to correct privately. And then he gives us another uh, instruction that's really important. Attempt to restore carefully. In Galatians 6 and verse 1, it says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person. What's that word? Gently. But watch yourselves and you also may be tempted. Sometimes with all the right intentions, somebody will say, I'm going to come alongside that brother or that sister. I'm going to try to help them. And in the process, sometimes uh, they do things or you do things that aren't proper and you get out of line with God's will yourself. And instead of helping them, you end up hurting yourself. So you've got to, you've got to know. For example, if you struggle with drinking, then you're probably not the one that needs to come alongside the person that's battling alcohol problems if that's your area that you're struggling with too. doesn't mean you can't pray for them and, and help guide them to some help, but you may not be the person that needs to be day-to-day working with that person, trying to help them with that struggle because it's a struggle for you too, and it could bring you down. It could be drugs or uh, any kind of temptation or struggle that somebody's going with, right? Somebody's working with. So you've got to be careful when you're trying to help others not to let yourself be brought down in the process. So he tells us we've got a responsibility as Christ followers to those who are wandering away. But I want to close with this last thing, and that's the reward that he talks about here. Uh, I, I want to repeat, uh, when we think about the reward for making this attempt, it's not always going to work out the way we want it to. Uh, not all will be restored. 
All, we need to attempt it with everybody, but not everybody's going to end up being restored. In 2 Peter 3, beginning with verse 15, he says this, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you've been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. He's indicating there that some people will be carried away and will fall away from their secure position. Again, I don't care if you believe in predestination or not. He's saying there's danger. Some people aren't going to listen. They aren't going to turn around. They aren't going to repent. They aren't going to come back into a right relationship with the Father. And it's going to lead to their destruction if they continue in that path. So we know going into it, not everybody's going to respond the way we would like them to. But that does not mean some people won't be saved. And they're worth the effort. He says, James says, they will be saved from death. 1 John, 9, well, 1 John 1, verse 9, it says this. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I can't tell you the joy that I felt when someone that I was trying to bring back does respond well. And they end up coming to this place where they're ready and willing and desiring to confess and, and repent and turn their lives around. It's, it's a wonderful celebration that we all ought to desire for everyone that is wandering away. And their walk with Christ. That does happen. I've witnessed it over and over again. And probably you have too with people that have turned around and come back in their walk with Christ. And God wants to use you to help as many as possible make that turn. Because they will be saved from, from death. And he says something else, James says, that sometimes is hard to understand. He says, you will cover over a multitude of sins. Scholars have talked about how this might be intended to be understood. And one of the things that they often agree on is this. Is that if they are willing to repent, is there any sin they've committed? As long as they're willing to repent and seek forgiveness. Is there any sin they've committed that they can't be forgiven for? No. Not if they're willing to repent, ask for forgiveness, confess it before God. They can be forgiven for wherever they've been, whatever they've done. So a multitude of sins, it doesn't matter how many it was, it doesn't matter how long it was, it doesn't matter what it was, if they're willing to repent and come back, what's God willing to do? Forgive them and welcome them back again. Isn't that amazing, the grace and the mercy of God? But I believe he might also be pointing forward, not just in the past. Because if he turns around, what's he not going to keep on doing, willfully doing? He's not going to just willfully go on sinning, is he? Or she? If they truly repent, if they truly turn back and come back to the Lord, they're not going to keep making those same choices anymore. So you prevent or cover over sins that would have been committed because that person has been brought back in their walk with Christ. It's nothing more beautiful. I, I, I can't tell you, there's no way I'll ever know until maybe in heaven God might reveal it. How many destructive things God has kept me from because I turned to him and decided to walk with him and follow his plan. 
destructive things to me or that I would have done to other people that I would have hurt other people. There's no way for us to know the things that didn't happen. But we know some bad things would have happened, right? Had we not come to the Lord and decided to follow his plan for our lives. You see, the benefits, the reward of being willing to risk being rejected, be willing to risk being made fun of, being willing to risk maybe even temporarily or permanently losing a friendship, the reward far outweighs those risks when somebody decides to come back home to the Lord, when somebody finds the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus for their lives, it's been worth any risk that we had to take to rescue those who would otherwise be perishing. In Luke 15, Jesus tells these three stories, right? The first one is, uh, well, let me give you the introduction. The tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So that leads into him telling these stories about lost things. So they're criticizing Jesus because he eats with, what? Sinners. And, and again, my question is always, who else is he going to eat with, right? That's, that's everybody, right? But in their eyes, it was those sinners that weren't, you know, they weren't even trying to honor God in their lives. And, and so he told them this parable. And he starts out with the one with the sheep. Remember verse 4? Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. So get the picture. He's saying in their, in their culture, I mean, there were shepherds all around them. There were sheep being raised in, their, in, in surrounding areas around them. And so they knew exactly how to picture what Jesus is talking about here. And there's a, there's a shepherd that's out there with his flock of sheep, and he's responsible for the care of those sheep. You see, in that culture, the shepherd didn't own the sheep. They took care of the sheep for the owner. And so they are responsible for every sheep they take out. They need to bring them all back safely. That's their responsibility. And so the shepherd has his flock of sheep, and he's got a flock of 100, and he makes the count. They always counted. They wanted to be sure all of them were there. And they make the count, and there's only 99, and they know one is missing. So he's got a choice to make. What is he going to do? Because they're out in the open country. If he leaves the 99, are they going to be, is it a risky move to do that? To leave them in the open country? Absolutely. But what does the shepherd decide? It's worth the risk to go get the one that's lost. It's worth the risk to go out there and find that sheep. And by the way, when you see the picture of Jesus with a lamb on his shoulders, that's not the picture here. It's not a little bitty lamb. The word used here is sheep. They can weigh over 300 pounds. And he throws that sheep over his shoulders and he carries it back home. And he celebrates with his friends because it's worth the risk to go get the lost sheep. You see, here's the deal. The shepherd leaving the 99 to rescue the one seems crazy until you're that one. Or your brother or sister is that one. Or your son or daughter is that one. Or your husband or your wife is that one. Or your mom or dad is that one. Or your best friend growing up is that one. 
that seems crazy until you're the one that needs to be rescued. Let's pray together. Father, Father, we know that you have given us a calling, all of us, to rescue the fallen. To look for and be aware of people who might be wandering away. And as risky as it is and as awkward as it can be, as, as hard as it is often going to be, you still want us to reach out to them with warning and love and encouragement and teaching to help them find their way back home. Because, Father, their, their life, their soul is worth it. Whatever the risk, what, however hard it is, Jesus died for them on the cross. His blood was shed for them. Their soul is that valuable to you, and it should be that valuable to us as your followers. Father, for, if there's anybody today hearing this message that has wandered away, please, Father, I pray that your spirit will be working on their hearts for them to be aware for them to know for sure that in your love and your grace and your mercy you have been longing this whole time for them to come back home to you and if they would just take the steps you would welcome them and we could celebrate with you their coming home father i pray that that any of us that have watched and are seeing someone wander away that we would have the love and the courage to reach out to them and let them know how much you care about what's going on in their lives. And may you use us to bring them home to the party that you're going to throw. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.